0: Welcome to the February podcast, wherein I'll be exploring in more depths some of the forthcoming films and events at Watershed. This month I'll be talking about the re-release on digital format of the Michael Curtiz 1942 classic Casablanca, the Turkish filmmaker Nuri Bilge Salan, whose new film Climates opens, and later I'll be talking to Japanese cinema expert Jasper Sharp about the forthcoming Japanese seasons, Move Over Ozu and Wild Japan. What is there to say about Casablanca, a film which has moved into the realms of the mythological in its status? It's so damn quotable that I realised it can be too easy to think about it as almost a parody. Sam playing it again, the gin joints, the usual suspects. It has become so familiar, passing into the lexicon of lovers and hard-bitten cynics alike. It's a film that people can readily agree is a masterpiece of Hollywood cinema. Why didn't even UK politicians vote at their favourite film? And that has to make you seriously worry. I've been thinking about Humphrey Bogart recently, and in particular, the Nicholas Ray directed In A Lonely Place from 1950. And you know, I'm convinced behind this star iconic image is a great screen actor. Great for technical reasons, seriously evident in Casablanca, and I'll come back to that. But also because of his acting persona, which evolved in his later films one that played off the tough guy to display a rare masculine vulnerability and complexity. Completely broken in Kane Mutiny, paranoid and potentially violent in A Lonely Place, and brilliantly used in Key Largo, playing opposite Edward G. Robinson's archetypal mobster. It's also interesting that Bogart took his destiny in his own hands and was one of the first stars to set up their own production company, Santana Films, where he could make his own creative choices, many of which precisely played with the hard guy image the studios had pinned on him. On looking again at Casablanca, this film seems to be the birthplace of that core interesting relationship with the tough guy. To all intents and purposes, Casablanca should just have been another Hollywood patriotic drama encouraging and supporting Europeans in their fight against Nazism. Indeed, Ingrid Bergman was so unconcerned about the film that she was busy negotiating a part in For Whom the Bells Toll, which with an Ernest Hemingway source was going to be infinitely more upmarket than the film she was currently working on. The scriptwriters and director didn't know what was going on. Famously, who was going to get the woman at the end? How incompetent does that sound? Apparently Bogart was grumpy with the proceedings. Daily rewrites, or just writes were common. Out of such chaos, perfection is born. The ambiguity on set seeps into the film, and from the looks on the actor's face they are unsure how things will play out, and this feeds into the very fabric of the film, which still manages to keep viewers gripped and enthralled. Ironically, the dialogue is just so perfectly precise and economical. The Epstein brothers and Howard Koch achieved an amazing feat. In a way, the film's achievement is theirs. They knew the kind of dialogue they certainly wanted Bogart to deliver, and they were just so adept at producing it. Maybe it was the pressure that contributed to the production of such greatness. The equally great scriptwriter William Goldman, responsible for such scripts as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Marathon Man, writes in his book, Which Lie Did I Tell? More Adventures in the Screen Trade, about this exchange between Claude Rains and Bogart.
1: I've often speculated on why you don't return to America.
0: Did you abscond with the church funds? Did you run off with the senator's wife? I like to think that you killed a man. It's the romantic in me. It's a combination of all three. And what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. Hmm. In an era when scriptwriters want to set up exposition, explain the whys of motivation, this is such a brilliant exchange. You know this guy has some dark secrets, and you know he's savvy at concealing them. You know he's complex, capable of falling irredeemably in love, and of killing a man. The former he has already done, and the latter he does at the end of the film. And that's not a spoiler, by the way. The setting up of Bogart's character, cynical, detached, dispassionate, neutral, then the introduction of Bergman and the unravelling of his broken heart, takes Casablanca completely out of the -the run-of-the-mill Hollywood at the time. In the famous, of all the gin joints, moment, just watch Bogart's face, or indeed when he first sees Ilsa on hearing Sam play as time goes by, There are flinches of pain twitching across Bogart's face, his eyes filled with emotion. It is in these minute moments that Bogart's acting genius is demonstrated. Small movements reveal aching emotional pain and depth. Great acting. Once you've watched Casablanca, go get In a Lonely Place and Key Largo for much more. Whilst the three main leads, Bogart, Bergman and Paul Henry were evidently agonising over where the script was going. Claude Rains was clearly just so enjoying himself. With some brilliant witty lines and a hat at a jaunty, well almost camp angle, he obviously thought, let's have some fun. But what of the characters after Casablanca? I'm convinced Ilsa and Victor Laszlo went on to not only play their part in the downfall of Nazism, but subsequently set up the United Nations and Amnesty International. They are indeed currently campaigning for the detainees at Guantanamo Bay, whilst Rick and Captain Renault, headed south, set up a nightclub with Sam and were last seen advising Martin Scorsese on the script of Goodfellas. A final word of caution out there for all you newly-resolutioned non-smokers. Casablanca is bad for your health. I have to confess, I started smoking because of this film. Just watch the way Bogart takes the cigarette up to his mouth takes a deep drag, subtly changes the finger configuration, then takes the cigarette back down. Sheer class, sheer integrity. He's one hell of a man, and there is one hell of a smoking in Casablanca. Casablanca opens the 23rd of February, the special, appropriate Valentine's screening on the 14th of February. Turkish director Nuri Bilg Salan first came to my attention two years ago at the Rotterdam International Film Festival, with his then-new film, Uzak, translated as Distant. I had heard people reverentially talking about this director, but hadn't come across any of his work. The festival circuit is one of those that is in constant need of finding the next new thing, the next buzz. So you do have to take recommendations with a pinch of salt. Seeing is believing is my credo. And so I saw Uzak, and I believed. Here was an extraordinary film for a number of reasons. Initially, though, it was simply that here was confident filmmaking. Actually, what I would describe as artisanal filmmaking. The way you watch, say, a carpenter produce a one-off piece of furniture. It's not a mass-produced thing, but rather an object of intense singular energy and intensity. Or maybe it's like the engravings of Albrecht Dürer. Well, you know what I mean, or I hope. My cinematic frame of reference was the early films of Vim vendors such as Alice in the Cities, or Kings of the Road, that type of material, or Stranger Than Paradise by Jim Jarmusch, and that is worth shouting about by anyone's standards. Basically, the emotion is in the detail, and the detail is in the shot. Celan holds shots long enough for you to lose yourself in the very texture of the scenery of the shot, sometimes even the grain of the image, but ultimately all leads to the unravelling of the emotions of the characters. In Uzak, it was the relationship between a cosmopolitan but creatively blocked photographer and his rough-edged, country-living cousin. And his new film, Climates, is between two lovers and the unravelling of their tempestuous emotional lives. When you find out that Solan himself started as a photographer, you realise it all makes sense. He knows how to frame a shot, he knows how to fill those frames with meaning and he has the confidence to hold shots to make the audience search beyond the surface for the emotional core of the film. The other great thing is that Selan is indeed a Turkish filmmaker, and given all the media debate about Turkey, whether it should be allowed into the European Union, being the bridge between East and West, and the tensions therein, here are quiet, restrained, subtle films about our emotional lives which we can all relate to. Climates opens on Friday the 9th of February. I'm joined by Jasper Sharp, who is co-founder of MidnightEye.com, which is a website uh, devoted to Japanese film, um, and also the recent publication, The Midnight Eye Guide to Japanese Film. Jasper's been involved in putting together a programme of touring work looking at 21st century Japanese family on film, Move Over Ozu. Jasper, I just want to ask you about the origins of the season that you've put together.
1: Well, I've been involved tangentially with the uh, Japan Foundation for a couple of years, sort of helping with their programming. Every year they do this annual touring programme, and the aim is to find like a good selection of the uh, best films made in Japan in the past couple of years. It's always a bit of a struggle to actually find a theme. If you say Japanese film to most people, I think they'll think horror movies, uh, strange sort of cult movies, animation... They'll either think that or they'll think um, classic cinema like Kurosawa or Ozu. And uh, between these two sort of poles, there's obviously like a huge, uh, vast amount of films that are going unrepresented in the UK. So the main goal with this one was to actually get some of the best films, which we thought had been released in Japan in the past couple of years, that hadn't really been seen in the UK, and uh, bring them to a wider audience.
0: And these these are all focusing on current family
1: life? Basically anyone who's got a family can appreciate uh, a film about a family, the other thing is, with this series, we've got a very sort of diverse selection of films. I mean, like basically, Ozu wasn't really making films about just about the family. He was using the family to uh, talk about a specific point of time in Japanese history. A lot has changed in Japan. Obviously, you've got like um, the economy's grown vastly since the post-war period. It's also collapsed afterwards. We've had like things like the uh, the gas attacks on the Tokyo subway, which is one of the films deals with that. Things like uh, gay life is now accepted in Japan. So all of the films in this series are meant to represent these sort of current changes in in Japanese society. Are there any films that you would uh, want to draw attention to? Well, for me, the real masterpiece is Canary. And I mentioned the thing about the Ohm gas attacks. These happened in 1995. Obviously, this renegade religious cult um, unleashed poison gas on the Tokyo subway. And it's been touched upon quite a few times in, in Japanese films ever since. The director of Canaries is this guy called Shioto Akihiko, and he makes lots of films about children, teenagers, and this gulf that's sort of grown between uh, adults and teenagers, how adults tend to idealize um, children's lives, and how that basically children nowadays don't have any sort of um, guidance from their adults. So he's using the the Ohm situation to portray this really twisted world where about these two children that uh, grow up inside the Ohm cult compound and uh, end up escaping and uh, running across Tokyo, having these very bizarre encounters. All the adults they meet are in some way sort of slightly weird. But it's amazing because it shows it from a sort of children's point of view. So it sort of works out this very surreal road movie, which uh, has got a bit of social commentary as well. I think films like A Laughing Frog and uh, Hanging Garden in particular are just like really good, fun films. I mean, they're sort of black comedies. The Hanging Garden's about this family that basically have all got their own separate lives and it's a fairly dysfunctional family, but the mother of the family says, right, let's have this rule. We're not going to lie to each other. Whatever we do, let's just not lie to each other. And so they end up, um, well, just having lots of escapades and completely mm-hmm. brutally frank. Hush is a very interesting one. It's all about two gay men who decide they want to. Get together and have a child and uh, meet this sort of dysfunctional screwed up woman who's uh, pregnant but just doesn't has no maternal instincts at all so she agrees to be sort of surrogate to them it's all about the sort of comedy of manners that sort of unfolds from there
0: if these films aren't being uh, screened regularly in the uk where, where do you keep up with um, japanese cinema how do you do that
1: there's certain directors that i sort of know and i also look at what's going on in the festivals in japan You've really got to keep your ear to the ground uh, with regards to sort of foreign film festivals. Sometimes, you know, there's also Asian countries that have the DVD releases as well, like Hong Kong and Korea, have subtitled DVD releases. Essentially, with with Asian cinema, I think it's one of those things that once you sort of know your way into it, it's fairly easy to sort of uh, keep track of the Mm. sources. The main problem is actually seeing them on a big screen, which is, of course, always the the purpose with Mm. cinema, I think. Mm. Well,
0: this is a, a great opportunity to see some new Japanese cinema on the big screen and Jasper will be doing a talk on Sunday the 4th of Feb at half past one and also introducing Canary on Sunday the 25th of February. And there's the the other side to Japanese cinema which is going to be showing at the Arnolfini, uh, which is uk. if you want to find out more information on the web which is called Wild Japan. This seems to be the flip side that you are talking about Jasper.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because um, this season just as well be called sort of Move Over Ozu as well because this is sort of the decade after the the sort of classical period of the 50s when you sort of start getting this rise in cult movies, uh, horror and Yakuza and a bit more sort of wilder, more fantastic stuff. There's some really interesting films in this one actually, Obviously, the classic is branded to kill, directed by a guy called Se- Sejin Suzuki, one of the most outrageous filmmakers ever i mean he's just basically rips up the book of filmmaking, and throws away completely um, you'll never have seen anything like this it's got a ridiculous plot about uh, an assassin trying to kill one of his rivals reach through the hierarchy of paid assassins but it's just the visual style is something that you've never seen anything like it before. Mm. Then, of course, there's sort of more outrageous stuff like a uh, female convict scorpion, a sort of woman in prison movie. But it's sort of um, the way it's treated, it's sort of filmed almost like a kabuki play. It's just something quite uh, unique. And then uh, the Japanese nun-sploitation movie. <laughs> 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 a must. A must, yes. Um, very strange, but something very strange about the Japanese nun movies. They seem to predate things like Ken Russell's The Devil. So I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure why anyone in Japan decided to make sort of. I'll oh, we'll call them sexploitation movies about nuns, but um, it's a pretty unique experience anyway. Incredibly well-made as well, which is the, the, the other thing that really strikes you about these sort of cult movies. And the
0: interesting thing is that from the 60s and 70s, um, is that there's a danger that people think Japanese um, action cinemas, as it were, kind of started about five or ten years ago.
1: Yeah, no, it really, all the seeds were sort of originally sown in the 60s. Yeah, what amazes me is these are all studio films and they've all been made with incredibly vast degree of resources well acted and they're just very good solid well-made films even though you could just dismiss them as exploitation
0: and finally on the Japanese front where you just reminded me that we're screening uh, a page of madness a silent film
1: yeah this is a very unusual film as well Uh, made in 1926 the director is a man named Tenosuke Kinagasa Japanese silent film at the time was all very theatrical and it was all like sword fighting and um, period dramas and um He'd read about things like Battleship Potemkin. He'd never seen them because they were banned in Japan at the time. So he was reading all this theory and he saw lots of German expressionism and he thought, right, I can do this, and uh, made this sort of bizarre sort of experimental film set in a lunatic asylum. There's really nothing like it made in Japan at the time. And so this is, again, a very rare chance to see this film because it's not on DVD or video anywhere, not even in Japan. So seeing it on a big screen is going to be quite amazing.
0: And even rarer, it's going to be performed uh, uh, with the Birdman of Alki Jazz at the Fini, which is uh, live improvised music. So it's going to be quite an experience.
1: Yeah, I think this is going to be something really special. I can't wait for this one.
0: So thanks very much, Jasper Sharp.
1: My pleasure.